Well, hello, everybody. It's uh, good to see you. I want to say hello to our Edgewood campus and our Bel Air campus. I'm going to say hello to the Avenue campus. I mean, you're here. You know who you are. If you're getting ready to go in two weeks, yeah. Uh, it's very exciting. And if, if you're not going, if you haven't been over there to see what it's like, I want you to be invited. There's an open house this week on Thursday. So all this, all this stuff we've been talking about, we've been praying for, it's coming uh, to be. And the grand opening is in two weeks. Open house this week on Thursday. I want to say something to you. If you're not a part of that launch team, I uh, want you to actually feel uninvited to the grand opening, okay? Uh, come and satisfy your curiosity at the open house. If you're part of the launch team, go. Grand opening, that's for you. Tell your friends and, and go. If you're not part of that, uh, don't go on grand opening. We want, to, we want to make sure there's plenty of room for people who may have no connection to a church that are looking for a place there. So you, you catch that? You understand what I'm saying there? Don't need to say it again? Okay, okay, you got it. You got it. Uh, You may have seen some of these orange buckets around uh, this weekend, and that's because you have seen, no doubt, uh, all all the thing, everything's going on in Texas with Hurricane Harvey and the disaster there in Houston and surrounding areas. A lot of people have asked, and that's what I love about this church, how can we respond? What what can we do? Ben sent out an e-note. There's some information on our website. This, of course, is going to be a multi-stage recovery process, and so we'll figure out ways to be involved going forward. Uh, right now, one of the ways we can respond is simply by giving. And that's what these buckets are for on the way out. If you want to uh, make an offering, change for a dollar. If you've got a dollar, if you've got something, you can drop in the bucket as a way to provide some relief going toward emergency assistance. We're going to partner with Ecclesia Church. Sean Palmer is one of the pastors there. He actually spoke at Mountain. Uh, there's a picture of him last year. And they're right on the ground, right in the thick of it, trying to help the relief effort for their city. And so whatever we give today will be sent down there as a way to just help with the, uh, the relief, the recovery effort that is uh, ongoing right now. So if, if you want to do that, drop in the bucket at all of our campuses on the way out um, and help make some change, help bring some relief to an area that desperately needs it. And, and we'll just stay attentive to uh, how God is calling us to respond and engage in the days going forward as no doubt there's a long process ahead of them and ahead of us. So... All right, well, I don't know where your travels have taken you this summer, but uh, it's, it's over, so I hope you went somewhere. Uh, if you've been hanging around here, you know we've been ducking in and out of some of the lesser-known parts of the Bible, off the beaten path, discovering some truth and insight and inspiration and teaching, all kind of valuable stuff that you might not find unless you really went looking for it. Uh, we're in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, everything pre-Jesus. Before God, the Creator, revealed Himself in Jesus, He revealed Himself in his relationship with his people. And in the Old Testament, it's all kind of these these snapshots, all right, put together to tell one overarching story and give us a window into who God is and how does he relate to his people and what is he doing in the world. And one of those snapshots occurs uh, in the days of Jael, which is in the book of Judges. Now, you may not care about that. And you may not have any experience with this part of the Bible, but I happen to have um, a particular affection for it. Judges chapter 4 and 5. When I was in graduate school, I remember studying this text. And my wife was pregnant with our first child, and the gender we didn't didn't yet know. But I read that name, J.L., and I said, that's the one. If it's a girl, the name is going to be J.L. Now, in Hebrew, it's probably pronounced Yael. In East Tennessee, where I was in school, it was pronounced Jail, like prison. That's... (laughs) They just could not figure it out. But we like it, and so J.L. is our oldest daughter. She's almost 10, starting fourth grade this week. And if, if you'll allow me to speak as a father for a moment, um, 50 people got baptized last weekend. Uh, it was awesome. And 
the weekend before that, nine people got baptized at our Edgewood Baptism Splash, and JL was one of them. So it was awesome. My wife and I, yeah, we got to celebrate that with her. Now, leading up to that, I was talking to her, and I said, you know, JL, you're going to go back to school, and you talked to all your friends about what you do this summer, and will you tell them you got baptized? And they say, why'd you do that? What would you say to them? And she said, well, because I love Jesus, and I want to follow him, not just for a short time, but for my whole life, which I just thought was an incredibly insightful response. I mean, so often when we think about baptism, we say, think about saying yes to Jesus, especially for kids. The draw is heaven, right? Which... I want to go to heaven someday, and heaven is part of the package of what Jesus promises. But when you only hear heaven and not that Jesus is Lord, leader of your life, well, then you're not uh, hearing the entirety of Jesus' invitation to follow him. So I, just, I was impressed with my daughter, who, who at some level understands the relational aspect of this decision. It's not just some religious ticket punch. It's a relationship rooted in love and to the, the lordship of of Jesus, that uh, the call is to obey and to follow Jesus, not just for a short time, but for her whole life. So, I mean, I didn't know all that when I was nine. Um, just grateful for, for people who've helped shape her, for Miss Rena, Miss Cleo, Mr. Chris, and all of our Mountain Kids ministry that help my kid, my kids, and our kids help them see Jesus for who he is. So it, it's awesome. And, that, and that's my JL. Um, I think I've met a Yael here at Mountain before, but there's, you don't hear that name too much, do you? Uh, what do you think? You like it so far? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't tell me if you didn't anyway. But uh, well, you have to tell me what you think of it after you hear the story from the book of Judges. I, I'm not sure we're doing this one in Mountain Kids. It's definitely off the beaten path. And, you know, we have talked about some of the benefits of going off the beaten path. But you know why we don't do it? You know why we don't travel the lesser-known trails? Because the highway's paved, right? and it's marked, and it's smooth. There are giant directional signs telling you where to go and how to find helpful things, food, gas, lodging. It's clear. You get from A to B, you just follow the well-defined rules of the road, and you go along the designated route. When you're on the highway, you don't worry about getting stuck in the mud or falling off a cliff or getting whacked in the face by a tree branch. We can romanticize a jaunt through the woods to a tucked away cottage, but the reality is that going off road is rough. There's no guarantees about what you're going to find. The path is not lit or marked if there's even a path at all. And it can be a real challenge to keep your bearings and figure out where you've been, let alone where you're going. And I'm telling you that because when you open your Bible today to the book of Judges, it feels more like that. Like you're trying to find your way through a thick forest. The, the surroundings are unfamiliar. It's a very different environment to what many of us are used to. And you got to sort of claw through in order to find your way and see clearly, where is this thing leading me? As I'm navigating the biblical text, what is it saying to me? Have you ever felt like the Bible is a foreign world? Like, like it's a little thick? You ever had trouble uh, getting your bearings and having a sense of direction as you read words that are thousands of years old? It can be that way, especially when it comes to the book of Judges. If you're looking for it, it's uh, the seventh book of the Bible, the seventh volume of episodes in the relationship between God, Yahweh, and his people, Israel, the Israelites. You might remember in volume two, God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. And then he made a covenant with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. And as you follow me and worship me, you will be a witness to the broader world, God said. And this was a world where, where every uh, people group 
had their own association with their own God. And they would call on this God and hope to earn that God's favor, get them on their side so that life would be good for them. Honestly, it's not totally dissimilar from our world. Now, that we don't have a landscape dotted with altars and poles and temples and so forth, but still, a plethora of idols making promises to us that if we could just harness their power and get them on, their, get them on our side, life would be good. If we had security, control, position, wealth, pleasure. We're constantly tempted to do the bidding of those gods. And the Israelites, too, were constantly, they constantly had the opportunity to forget about the promises of God who rescued them from slavery, the God to whom they had pledged themselves, the God who led them into the land that he had promised. That happens in volume six. And at any point, there, there were always a lot of other options if they wanted to forsake that God and console themselves with the God of their own invention. And in the book of Judges, God's people exercise that option over and over again. It's the plot line for the book. God's people abandon him. They sell themselves to other gods. They get oppressed by foreign nations. And in their suffering, they cry out to the one true God to save them. He does through raising up a leader, a judge, and everything returns to normal for a while until they just go and repeat the cycle again and again and again. That is pretty much the whole book. It'd be comedy if it wasn't tragedy, like watching someone in the cycle of addiction. It's not a pretty part of the Bible. It's just not. And it's not stable. When you enter into it, immediately you hear the sounds of war. And it's, it's disorienting. Because as you're trying to hear what God is saying to you, there's all the time, all of this racket going on. And you're trying to sift through the carnage and figure out what is God saying in the midst of what is just a very violent book. (laughs) What was that? That's kind of what you say. What is going on in the book of Judges? And here's the thing, when it comes to Judges chapter 4, it's not just that there's a war going on, uh, like you're experiencing that, reading the text as if you're watching a news program of a foreign conflict or watching a war movie uh, on Netflix. No, when you get to Judges chapter 4, the war has come to our streets. You think about how you have felt, the emotions that have been stirred in you, if you have ever had any proximity to a riot. Recorded by someone out in the streets. People everywhere running all over the place. No, nobody's in charge. Nobody's in control of this. It's just this chaos. Right? Terrifying. Any illusions we had of security vanish. Our world is not safe. Hell is breaking loose. Fight or flight. There's nothing to hold on to. How do you hear what God is saying in the middle of that? That's what we're trying to figure out in Judges chapter 4. When you open to Judges 4, you uh, come across some people who have already been through the cycle a few times in the opening chapter. And now in Judges 4, it's here we go again. 
Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So God allowed them to be oppressed by King Jabin and his evil army commander, Sisera. Sisera, you have to remember that name. Uh, Sisera, the Bible says, had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. We don't know all the forms of that oppression, but there's some commentary in the next chapter that says, in those days, the highways were abandoned. Travelers taking to just the winding path. People are only going off the beaten path because the streets just aren't safe. So living in fear, they're holed up in their own homes, paralyzed, sneaking around the back roads just to survive. There's no rule of law. Families being torn apart, cities being burned, women being raped. The bad guys are just doing whatever they want, and there's nothing we can do to stop them. So as we've grown accustomed to seeing, and as any of us would do in a situation like that, the people cried to the Lord for help. Yes, the God whom they ignored when life was easier. Have you ever been in the cycle Have you ever come to that desperate place where you finally realize the things I've been trusting for safety, for comfort, for pleasure, for meaning, for the good life, they're not gods that can deliver on what they promise, nor can they deliver me from this mess that they've gotten me into? That's where God's people are in Judges chapter 4. Now Deborah, that's where the Bible goes next, A prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went to her to have their disputes decided. So here's a little bit of insight into the political structure of the Israelites, which I know you were interested in and wondering about and were about to ask me. Um, So this is not a kingdom. It's, it's It's not a democracy. There's not some central capital with office buildings downtown. Right, God, Yahweh, is the king, really. And he leads his people through raising up these chieftain-type figures, judges. Uh, Gideon, Samson, maybe you've heard of them. Well, this is Deborah's moment. And she's got a spot under a tree from which she speaks for the Lord and manages the people. And one day, she sent for Barak, son of that guy from that place, and she said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I, the Lord, will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Wow, this is Sisera. 900 iron chariots. They've been raiding and pillaging the land for 20 years. Deborah says, God says, it's time for that to end. So Barak, you go scour the landscape for volunteers. Not activate the trained uh, combat brigades, but you go look for people who are willing to put down their garden tools and take up arms against Sisera and his iron chariots. And the Lord will give you victory. (laughs) And Barak looked at Deborah. I think we actually have a picture of what Deborah was wearing when she said this. (laughs) Trust me, I'm a prophet. Barak's got to decide if he can trust. Is this really true? Barak said to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, then I won't go. And Deborah must be like, what? Did you not hear me? The Lord commands you. All right, but if that's where you're at, then here's how it's going to be. I'll go with you, said Deborah. But if you're going to play it like that, if that's the course you're going to take, then the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Barak's hesitant. Doesn't trust the word of the Lord fully. Needs a little bit of reassurance. I think we can relate. 
From Deborah's perspective, she says, you can worry about it all you want, but God's going to get it done whether you think so or not. And just to prove that the horsepower for the task is coming all from God and not from you, Sisera will not fall by your hand, but by the hands of a woman, which in a patriarchal culture would have been quite an insult. Do you like the story so far? Are you anxious to see how it goes? I think that if you were a female, you'd be very interested to see how this turns out. Well, they go on from there. Deborah maybe like holding Barak's hand or something. And they call the 10,000 men as God directed, and they assemble at Mount Tabor. And just like God said, Sisera and all his army come to the Kishon River. And Barak's looking at Deborah, and Deborah's looking at Barak, and Deborah says, Go! Now is the time. This is the day. The Lord is with you. He will fight for you. And at Barak's advance, the Lord, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So, so the ruckus happens and the dust settles with all of Sisera's army dead except him, which is like classic, right? Like tells you something about the kind of guy Sisera is. There's no captain going down with the ship kind of guy, right? And at that point, we are introduced to someone, and I'd like to introduce someone to you. JL, would you come on out here? And I actually, I need a, I need a volunteer. Uh, Rodrigo, you good? Yeah, come on up here. Yep. Uh, this is JL, my daughter, and I think Rodrigo has agreed. He doesn't know what he's agreed to, but he's, he's coming on up here uh, to help us out here. So we're going to do a little bit of role playing, all right? Rodrigo, thank you. This is my daughter, JL. All right? Shake hands. Good. There we go. Um, have you heard this story before? Oh, okay. All right. Um, so you're going to be Sisera, all right? And you're going to be JL, naturally. I'm going to read the text, and you just kind of act out what I read. I'll, it'll prompt you, and you just kind of act it out. All right? You ready for that? So we're in Judges 4, beginning of verse 17. So Sisera fled on foot to the tent of JL. Sisera fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of Abra the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin and the family of Abra the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink. (laughs) And she covered him up as he laid down. (laughs) He told her, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Okay, that's, uh, we, can be, we can be done. That's good, Rodrigo. You can get up, man. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's good. The guy at the last service didn't make it, man. So he... <laughs> Good job. All right. That would have been a dirty trick, right? And it was. I mean, it was a dirty trick. That's the story of J.L., Old Testament hero. Right? Or, or not? I don't know. Do we applaud her actions? What, what are we to make of this? 
Now, there are some times the Bible uh, clearly marks out the path. When Jesus tells a story about a person who cares for the needs of another person and says, go and do likewise. Or when he shows and tells his disciples what it means to be a servant and he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Or the Apostle Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. We know. It's, the path is clearly marked. The calling might be hard, but we know what is expected of us. We know what to do with God's word in that moment. But is the JL story a go and do likewise? moment. JL lied. I mean, she was very deceptive and provocative too, right? I mean, it's a distant culture, but come on, I mean, guys, when a woman invites you in, there is a certain implication there. She's a traitor. Her, Her family had an alliance with Sisera's king. She's not an Israelite. She's a Kenite. And she gruesomely murders an unarmed man in his sleep after vowing to protect him. You might say, no, no, it's wartime. No, her people aren't at war. Judges 5 is a song that celebrates the victory. 524 says, most blessed among women be Jael. I love that verse, painted on my daughter's wall. But is it right that Jael would be esteemed and considered most blessed? What are we to think of her? It's a little hard to navigate. And the forest gets even thicker. That victory song goes on. And why does the Bible do this? It starts messing with our emotions a little bit. The song starts mocking Sisera's mother, his grieving mother. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? And it makes you feel a little bad. Watching a mom peer out the window waiting for her son who's never coming back. He's killed at war. You start to even sympathize for the enemy. Why why is the Bible bringing his mother into this anyway? And then just as you start to feel bad for her, you read the next verse, which says, Indeed, Sisera's mother keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. And you're reminded, all right. That's who Sisera was. His mother is imagining Sisera going in with all his men and defiling, selling, victimizing the women and raiding the houses for plunder. And so you come back to thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe he deserved every inch of that tent peg. Poetic justice. And so ends Judges chapter 5 and the story of what happened in the days of Jael. Now let me ask you again, what do you think of the name? And, and, and what do you think we should do with, with that story? I'd like to know. It's hard to know exactly. It's hard to know what to do with a book like Judges, which repeats that same kind of thing over and over again. I mean, in fact, it ratchets up the intensity of the violence. Every page is stained with blood, sometimes because of the violence done to God's people, sometimes because of the violence done by God's people. They're fighting the enemy. They're fighting each other. It is just an ugly, unruly time. What does that mean for us? Where are we supposed to go with all of that. There doesn't seem to be a lot of signs pointing the way. In fact, the signs of morality that the Bible often sets up in so many other places don't seem to be visible from here. They're hidden from view. As I said, it's like walking through a dark forest. And as we try to figure that out, I think the first thing that I have to say, as one having entered into the text, as one going along this less traveled route 
is that if I was on the ground just dealing with what's in front of me, I think I'd be singing the song of Judges 5, most blessed of women, BJL. And I'd be belting out the last line too. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Because then the land had peace for 40 years. We haven't had peace for so long. Fear has invaded every day of our lives. We can't even walk down the street in the middle of the day. Pulse never settles. Nervous system on high alert. Every sound is a threat. The little we have could be taken from us at any moment if we even live to see our next moment. And the man responsible for all of that is now pinned to the ground, never to be heard from again. Praise God for JL. Call her a hero. I don't know how to draw any other conclusion if I'm down on the ground. The blood-stained ground. But if you could get a higher perspective, you'd take it. Like if you were able to fly a drone up over the trees and get a sense, some kind of understanding of this area into which you have wandered. And when you do, when you get a view high enough to overlook uh, the whole book of Judges, there is one obvious feature of the landscape. And it looks like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king, and everybody did whatever they wanted. Those are the last words of the book, which ends just as bleakly as it started. In fact, you could say it even gets worse, because the wars at the end of the book are civil wars. God's people are killing each other. Now, some of us are saying, boy, that sounds like an interesting book. I've got I to read that book. That's my kind of thing. And you can, uh, and you should. And if you do, I think that you will come to the realization that people need to be led. I need to be led. People need to be led. And you might think at first there's, there's a great distance between us and them. Uh, I mean, for, for all the, the flaws that someone would point out about our political systems, our society is characterized by secure property rights, by the rule of law, by protection from en- foreign enemies, and many individual freedoms, all of which were totally foreign to the people living under Cicero's tyranny. But yet we still seem to lack peace, many of us. And we fight battles of a different kind, maybe. At war with ourselves, with our demons, with our traumatic past, or, or a different sort of civil war rages in our families. We are, in large part, an anxious, fearful people, not unlike the people of Israel. There is a chaos swirling around us, and just like them, we need to be led. We need guidance, we need hope, we need, we need vision. If there's any chance of breaking a cycle whereby we sort of trust God and then we sort of don't and we drift away for a while until we realize how lost we are and then we take interest in God again only to be consumed by the empty promises of something else. If life is ever going to be different, we have to be led. We have to recognize our need for a leader. The witness of the Bible, whether you're off the beaten path or you're on the main highway, the witness of the Bible is of God saying, I'll lead you, let me do it. Trust me, I'll help you stand firm in the battle. I'll lead you through the chaos. No one else can do that like me. Let me do it. In the book of Judges, the people had no king and everyone did whatever they wanted. Well, that's not actually true. God was their king. 
But they resisted that. Guess what? Keep reading the Old Testament. God's people get a king, and everybody still does whatever they want. And God is still saying, I'm your king. Let me lead you. It's the only way out of the mess and the stress and the havoc caused when you go your own way. And it's as true today as it was back then. People need to be led by God. That's why Jesus came. You fly the drone all the way up and you get a look at the whole forest. Jesus said, God is still king. and His kingdom is at hand. Let me lead you. You can trust me. If you want to get out of the cycle, let me lead you. Not just for a short time, but for your whole life long. The saddest funerals that I do are of people who are part of a family that is just pure chaos, like the sounds of war are always thumping. And I'm not, I'm not so much focused on the eternal destiny of the deceased. I often don't know. I don't preach anybody into heaven. I, I know that God is just and God is full of grace and salvation is his thing to handle. But what, what is clear when I'm looking at those who are left in the wake is nobody's got a leader. Everybody's doing whatever they see fit, ignorant of the God who all throughout the book of Judges, all throughout Scripture, all throughout history and up to the present time is saying to me, is saying to us, let me lead you, not just for a short time, but for your whole life long and into eternal life. Are you willing to be led? Am I willing to be led? A lot of people want to be a leader, but... As any of the judges who emerge from the mess demonstrate, leadership is only effective when the leader is led by God. So maybe, are, are you being led by your passions? Are, are you being led by, by people who can't even lead themselves? Are you being led round and round in a cycle? Are there some areas of your life where you are just determined to do as you see fit? We need a higher perspective looking down on the book of Judges where it is so clear people need to be led by God. And I think that even from that higher perspective, I think you'd have to look down and remember J.L. as a hero. At the end of the day, she finds herself on the right side of history. The Bible ultimately lauds her most blessed of women, which is striking because she had not pledged herself to the Lord. Uh, her, her people, she was not an Israelite. In fact, her family had pledged themselves to the enemy. But yet she decided she was not going to kowtow to the evil that had tyrannized God's people for the last 20 years. She was going to put a stop to it. And that's, I think, as close as I can get to saying, go and do likewise, is to spiritualize it, knowing that there is a battle going on for all of us. It may not be as bloody. There's a battle going on. The world is uncertain and tumultuous, and there are so many things that work against God's purpose that want to lead you astray. And when those things come to your door, I hope you will be ready to pound them to their death. The cycle won't stop. Peace won't come until you put to death what's dragging you down and let God lead you. And may... May we even find encouragement that the violent, complex book of Judges is part of the Bible. 
It's messy. It's an ugly part of the story. It's not nice and tidy. But God's redemptive work and his leadership of his people endures through it. And so if your life is not neat and tidy, if it's, there's, there's violence, it's bloody, it's not, it's not what it's supposed to be, it's messy in some way. If it's not neat and tidy, and let's just be honest too, may you be encouraged to know that God's redeeming work continues because he is looking for anyone, anywhere who is willing to be led, not just for a short time, but for your whole life long. Let's pray. God, thank you for your leadership of us. Thank you for your word to us, which comes to us in ways that we don't always understand and sometimes seem foreign and difficult to digest. Uh, As we think about whatever uh, tumultuous, chaotic world we're in right now, I pray that in all of it we'd be able to hear your voice. We would be able to be focused on you and see the hope and the vision that you have for us. We may have the courage to follow you and to act on your behalf, even in a world that is hard and where we feel the pain. God, we thank you for Jesus who redeems us from the mess. Jesus who can work with broken people, who can work with people who have a past and a a story that isn't pretty. Work with us, lead us. Jesus, be our leader. We pray in your name. Amen.